We may now turn to the Word of God to consider words that we find in the chapter read, Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, we may read from verse 11. And the Lord said unto him, that's Ananias, Arise and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for, behold, he prayeth. Behold, he prayeth. And those are the words that we would seek to concentrate our minds upon for a little this evening. Whenever we come across that word, behold, it is intended to draw our attention in a particular way, to cause us to focus with some intensity upon something that is important or something that's unusual or something that's peculiar. And it is here remarkable that we have these words concerning the individual to whom they apply. Behold, he prayeth. But you will see who it is that says this. This is not uh, Ananias. This is not one of the Christians in Damascus. This is none less than God himself. And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the street which is called Street, and inquire in the house of Judas, for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. And you see, it is God who recognizes this prayer. When you read through the scriptures, it's made very clear to us that God does not respond to many prayers and that God does not recognize many of what are called prayers. He does not recognize them as prayer. If, for example, you go back, we could go to many passages in the prophets, but if we go uh, to the very first chapter of the prophecy of Isaiah. And you have similar in Jeremiah, uh, in Isaiah, in the chapter 1, verse 15, God says, because of their sin and their apostasy from him, when ye spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you, yea, when ye make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. So you see, God does listen to what men have to say or what they attempt to say in his presence. But what men think may be prayer, God does not consider it so. And so we have to Indeed, pay attention. Behold, God says, Behold, Saul of Tarsus, he's really praying. He really is praying. It's a real prayer. It's a true prayer that he's offering to God. Again, in the same 
prophecy of Isaiah you have there in chapter 59 as the prophet is coming to the end of his prophecy in the second verse of that chapter God said in verse 1 to get the connection behold the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save neither is ear heavy that it cannot hear but your iniquities have separated between you and your God and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear he will just turn as it were a deaf ear he will ignore it And so you see, when we understand that prayer is something that is offered up to God, it should concern us, does God consider what I think is prayer, does he consider it to be prayer? What I offer to him, does he accept it as genuine prayer? Now here we have uh, God... The Lord saying of Saul of Tarsus, Behold, he prayeth. He's genuine. His prayer is real. His prayer is one that will be answered. His prayer is recognized by God. We are told in the scriptures that men ought always to pray and not to faint. And we ought always to be praying because we need to pray. But it should concern us. Do we really pray? Or do we just utter words? Do we bring to God fine expressions? Even orthodox expressions. Scriptural expressions. Texts from the word of God. Do we bring what sounds good and think then, because it sounds good to us, that it is also good before God. Behold, he prayeth. Because God recognizes this as prayer, you and I need to consider it. And we need to look at certain elements of this particular praying of this particular man. Now, of course, it is Saul of Tarsus that is identified as the one who's praying. And yet, because of who he is, we would understand that throughout his lifetime, he was supposed to be praying again and again and again. Whenever Jesus is teaching on the Mount in what is called the Sermon on the Mount, in the sixth chapter of Matthew's Gospel, when he's giving counsel and advice about prayer, he says this. Verse 5 of Matthew 6. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites. My, that's something God doesn't like. We already noted it today, the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And Jesus is here identifying prayer that is the prayer of the hypocrite. It's not real. It's not genuine. It's false. It may impress men. But this is what God says. When thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray, 
standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret. When last, my dear friends, did you do that? When last were you alone? Alone with God, just you and God. And you were praying. And it was real prayer. This is what Jesus is saying. Enter into thy closet. And when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret. And thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Why do we have the words we have in Acts chapter 9? Behold, he prayeth, because God sees in secret. And Saul of Tarsus was hidden out of sight from the world. But God saw him, and the Lord knew he's praying. He's a praying man. He's really praying. And this is what Jesus warns against. Praying like who? When thou prayest, thou shalt not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray. They get pleasure out of praying. Have you ever heard some men, when they're asked to pray, they may think to themselves, and they may even express it, they feel they're struggling. And they sometimes have to acknowledge They know not what things to pray for as they ought. They don't find prayer to be something easy. It doesn't come natural to us to pray. We need the spirit of prayer. God has to really pour into the soul the spirit of grace and of supplications. That's what we need in this day and age, the spirit of of grace and of supplications to be poured out upon the church of Jesus Christ. But you see, Saul of Tarsus was a Pharisee. And he was one of those who got pleasure out of praying. Gave him a comfortable, nice, warm feeling. Because, you see, He liked to draw attention to his prayers. He liked, indeed, to be seen praying. He liked his pious life to be recognized. And Saul is in secret with God, and God says, Behold, he prayeth. Oh, there was many times when people were admiring him when he was in the synagogue. And he would be standing and praying. And there would be poor souls and be saying, My, I wish I had a grasp of the theology he's got. I only wish I could pray like that young Pharisee. How learned, how evil he is. And then they might be out in the street and there they see this young man and he's standing unembarrassed, unashamed at the street corner, And as the world passes in all directions, he's praying, he thinks, 
and people are recognizing it. And he wants people to know, I'm a man of prayer. But here's what God's saying now. Behold, he prayeth. He never prayed in his life as he's praying now. He never presented himself before God in the state and with the spirit that he's now praying. And therefore, uh, when we consider these words, there should arise questions in our own minds. Have I really, really prayed? Does God recognize what I have considered to be prayer? If you'd spoken to Saul of Tarsus on his way to Damascus, along the journey maybe they had to stop with the mules, And with all the letters that he had to the synagogues in Damascus, you imagine them pulling up. It was time for Saul of Tarsus to pray. And he has to stand there and they all wait while he prays. At least he he thinks he's praying. But it is here at this time God says he's really praying now. He really is praying. And the experience of the apostle as he becomes is the experience of a regenerate soul. I can remember whenever I was a little fellow, my brother and I, at night, when my mother was putting us to bed, we had to get down and kneel at the side of the bed and learn to recite after my mother the Lord's Prayer as she and tempted to teach us to pray. And that was the first prayer we learned. And we we learned it as what was known as the Lord's Prayer. And we considered it to be important to know it. In fact, I still remember how in mornings and classes, in the morning class at primary school, the whole class had to recite the Lord's Prayer. In school, how different it is in our godless society. How ignorant people are of the the very reality of prayer. The exercise of prayer. No one knows what prayer is anymore, it seems, in a general way in our society. But here's something that should, should teach us and instruct us. There are prayers that God recognizes. And there are prayers that he responds to because he knows them to be real. And that's what you and I surely want. We want to go into God's presence with real prayers and of the confidence God knows this is real prayer coming out of the depths of my soul, wrought in my soul, by the power of the Spirit of God. Now, when we consider that it is Saul of Tarsus, the Pharisee, who's praying, and he's praying in a way he's never attempted to do before, he doesn't have to make up a prayer, it is coming out of the depths of a soul 
that has experienced divine power, and it is the prayer of a changed man. The prayer of a truly changed man. That's why his prayer is different, because he's different. His mind, his thinking is different. His understanding is different. Notice uh, when he's praying here, he has met the risen and glorified Christ. And this is what uh, we read when he fell to the ground. He said, verse 5, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. I am Jesus. What a shock to a system that had to be. I am Jesus. If there was any name that he didn't want to hear, it was the name of Jesus. If there was any person he didn't want to meet, it was the blasphemous Jesus, the imposter as he considered him to be. But whether he wanted to meet with Jesus or not, Jesus planned to meet with him. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Isn't that truly wonderful? Saul of Tarsus didn't intend to have any meeting with Jesus. And many and many a sinner will acknowledge that when Christ came and met with them, they had no intention of ever meeting with him. Their mind was not in that direction. Their hearts were not toward the Savior. What a wonderful thing. Mercy and grace is the mercy and the grace of God. And here is Jesus being persecuted, being hated, And yet, he comes to Saul of Tarsus. And this is what we read, Jesus said unto him, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks, and trembling and astonished. He, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what will thou have me to do? He doesn't now follow the way that is right in his own eyes. He's acknowledging here his ignorance. He's acknowledging that he's in the way of a transgressor. He's acknowledging here his sinful condition before God. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Not my will, but thine be done. And you read in the Acts, uh, in his own testimony, in Acts 26, when uh, the apostle is brought before King Agrippa, and uh, this is what he says, why should it, verse 8 of Acts 26, why should it be thought a thing incredible to, with you that God should raise the dead? Why would anyone think that that's incredible? Why would anyone deny the reality of a miraculous resurrection? I verily thought with myself 
that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Paul was a thinker. He was an educated thinker. He was a very logical thinker. You can see that in his letters. How logical is his reasoning? He had powerful logical reasons to convince men of the truth as it was applied by the Spirit of God. And he says, I thought and I was very confident in my thinking. I thought. And I thought I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I was going in the very opposite direction. Contrary. I was disagreeing with Jesus in every way. I was opposed to him to the fullest extent. Contrary. I was disagreeing with him on everything. But now what he says is this. What will thou have me to do? This spirit that is so contrary is now broken. And he's now in his knees in the presence of God praying because he's a changed man. And that is, of course, one of the clearest evidences of the new birth, of a change in a man or a woman or a young person's soul. They begin to pray. And they begin to pray aright. And dear young people, Learn to pray and ask the Lord by his Spirit to teach you to pray. That's what the disciples did. They came to the Lord. They found him in prayer. They were so impressed with his uh, his communication with his Father in heaven. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. We want to be able to pray like you. And that's what the believer, the true child of God, that's what they want. The Spirit of Christ. And to teach them how to pray with that Spirit. Behold, he prayeth. This changed man with a completely new attitude to the Savior. Because... He's the one mediator, and this is what Paul recognizes when he's writing to Timothy. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men. And he comes to God, and he's praying, but how is his prayers, with all that he's done, With all that he's guilty of, with all that he's responsible for, he was a persecutor and a blasphemer, he said. How can he possibly pray? How can he possibly think of approaching a holy God? There is one mediator between that holy God and the chief of sinners. One mediator. And because of that mediator, he's able to pray. He cannot possibly approach God without that mediator. He cannot possibly utter one acceptable word 
in the presence of God without that mediator. In the uh, epistle that he writes to (coughs) Timothy, the first epistle in the first chapter, uh, Paul, of course, is giving advice to Timothy out of his experience. And this is what he says in verse 15 of 1 Timothy 1. This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. This is a sinner praying. This is a man who considers himself now to be the chief of sinners. And yet there was a time previously when he considered himself to be the chief of the Pharisees, to be the chief of the godly and the pious. This is how he's now thinking of himself. He's got a sight of himself that he never saw before. He never knew himself before. And that's what happens when the Spirit of God works spiritual life in the soul. The man or the woman or the young person who's born again, they now discover themselves and they now understand themselves. They now see themselves in a way They were totally ignorant of previously. This is what happens to Saul of Tarsus himself when he's writing to the Philippians. This is what he says. He describes himself as extremely pious, above even others who were Pharisees and others who were pious. Philippians chapter 3 He speaks of uh, his uh, lineage. He speaks of his Jewish ancestry and so on. Verse 4 of Philippians 3, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh. Confidence in what he was doing himself. And this is what he says, If any other man thinketh that he hath whereof He might trust in the flesh, I more. What was he really saying? There's not a man that I'm aware of who is more holy than Saul of Tarsus. There's not a man that I've come into contact with that's more heavenly minded, that is more intent and pleasing God, that's more devoted to righteousness, I more. How how is he able to say this? Because he does what many of us do. He compared himself with others. I more. There's a righteous man. I'm more righteous. There's a praying man. I pray better and more. There's a man who attends in the worship of God, but I do far more. And that's what makes us so often feel so good 
That's what made Saul of Tarsus feel so good. He looked at others. And then, like the two that went up to the temple to pray, one was a Pharisee and one was a publican. And what did the Pharisee say? I thank God I'm not as other men are. And I thank God I'm not as this publican. And that's what Saul of Tarsus was saying. I more. I'm better than anybody. I'm more pious. I'm more godly. I'm more holy. Look at me. And then he goes on to say, Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was a real nationalist. He was real loyal to his lineage and to his people and to his nationality. As touching the law, a Pharisee. And then he goes on to say concerning zeal, persecuting the church. And listen, how ignorant he was. Touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. He had a real high opinion of himself until God dealt with him. And whenever we hear these words, Behold, he prayeth. He's a very different man. He's not the haughty Pharisee used to be. He's not comparing himself with others so that he might think he's better. He's found himself meeting with Jesus Christ and he's discovered the reality that he's been a persecutor of God's people, that he's now the very chiefest of sinners. He's comparing himself with every other sinner instead of the righteous, previously saying that he's better than others. Now he's saying I'm worse than others. What a change. God's power works in the mind of a man whenever he converts him. Whenever the grace of God enters the soul, what a change in the thinking, what a change in attitude, what a change in our estimation of ourselves. We come to discover our nothingness as he did. And here, what does he say? Touching the righteousness which is of the law blameless. How ignorant he was. But he says, what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. The one that he used to hate, the one that he didn't want anything to do with, whenever... Uh, Stephen is being stoned to death. He's standing there and he's approving of the murder and the martyrdom of Stephen because he was opposed to Jesus, Stephen's Lord and Master. Now what's happened? The one 
that he had neither time nor value for now becomes the whole pursuit of his being. He's willing to give up everything for Christ. Dear young people, understand this. This is what grace does. This is what salvation is about. Christ becomes so much the desire that we're willing to give up absolutely everything, to lose everything that we might have him. And you see, the great problem is there are those they would like Christ, provided they can have everything else. They can have their pleasures. They can hold on to their sins. They can live their own lifestyle. They can do what they want. They can mix with the ungodly. They can enjoy their company and still somehow have Christ. No, Paul says, all the things I throw away, my righteousness, my Phariseeism, my thinking of myself as better than others, I'm done with it. All I want is Christ. All I desire is Christ. Is that how it is with each of us here this evening? It is the prayer of a truly changed man. And the change is a radical change. And it is a particular change to which Christ is central. The one that he used to loathe and persecute. He's now ready and willing to abandon absolutely everything for him. Nothing else means so much. No one else is so desirable as what Christ is. But then, this is the prayer of a burdened man. Behold, he prayeth. God recognizes his prayer being real because it is the prayer of a man now burdened with something he never carried before. Look at what we read in verse 8 of Acts 9. Saul arose from the earth and when his eyes were opened he saw no man but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. He lost his appetite. He wasn't concerned about his body anymore. The great concern was his soul. The great concern is now his relationship with Christ. He neither eats nor drinks for three days. He's so burdened with his sin. We don't hear much in these days, and I know God deals with people very differently, and he dealt with Saul of Tarsus in a unique way because of who he was and the ministry that he was to engage in. 
I remember when I was ministering in the Isle of Skye, there was an elder from the Isle of Lewis, and he married a woman from Skye, and so he came to live in Skye. And he was in my congregation. And I became quite friendly with him. He used to be calling in all the time to the manse to have conversations. He loved to talk about the things of God. But I heard those who knew him in his, in his earlier days speak of what happened when he came under conviction of sin. As a young man, he joined the merchant navy. And he turned to sin, uh, even though he'd been brought up in a godly home. He just lived like the other sailors in the merchant navy, godless. But he came under strong conviction of sin to the extent his sin became such a terrible burden to him that the other sailors had to actually tie him down on board ship. They thought he's gone completely out of his mind. And the only thing they could do to try and control him when he was calling and crying to God, he couldn't work because he was in such a state. His sin had come home to him. It was such a reality to him. But the only thing his fellow sailors could do was tie him down to keep him under control. They thought the man is going out of his mind. Saul of Tarsus is three days without food or drink. That's not his concern. He can't think of anything else but his sin against Christ. He can't think of anything else but how he's been persecuting Christ and persecuting the people of God. He cannot see himself in any other light than this. And the very worst of sinners that ever walked this scene of time. And that's because although his eyes <coughs> were closed for three days, the eyes of his soul had been opened and he saw himself in a way they'd never seen himself before. This is the prayer that God recognizes. Behold, he prayeth. He prays because he's got his priorities right. He's come to discover his greatest need. Have we discovered what our greatest need is? Because when we discover the reality of our soul's needs, then we will really pray. As Jesus taught, what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? My, it's a remarkable thing. As I said earlier, there are prayers that God will never hear and will never answer. But men in desperation will attempt to pray in the most ridiculous way imaginable. 
We have that scene depicted in the visions of John in the book of the Revelation. In the chapter 5, we have those, and uh, they are doing what would appear to be the most ridiculous thing imaginable. They are calling upon the rocks and upon the mountains to hide them from the face of him who sits upon the throne. I said chapter 5, I should have said chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, you look at what's, look at what's described to us. And the kings of the earth, verse 15, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains. When Adam sinned against God, what did he do? He tried to hide from God. And here are men, yes, they're great men, but they are sinful men. And now they're confronted by God, their creator, and they are not repenting. They are not turning in repentance to God. It's as though they're defying him. And listen to what we read. They are hiding themselves in the rocks and the mountains and said, listen to the mountains and rocks. Look at what they're praying to in their utter desperation. Can you think of anything more desperate? Men in such desperation, answerable to God, terrified by the sight of God, terrified that he's going to now judge them, terrified that he's going to now punish their sin. And there they are, saying to the mountains and to the rocks, praying to the mountains and the rocks. What would you think? Have you seen a poor soul on their knees, praying to the rocks and the mountains, hide us from the fears of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Isn't that a strange prayer meeting? It's a mighty large prayer meeting. Kings and the great men and the mighty men and the bondmen and free men, and they're all praying. And they're directing their useless, worthless, fruitless prayers to the rocks and the mountains. And you might think they've lost their minds. They've completely gone crazy. That's what it's going to be like for those who will meet God 
in their sins and in their rebellion. They will go out of their minds. They will be in such desperation. What a blessed thing it is then that here Saul of Tarsus is praying and it's a real prayer and it's a properly directed prayer and it's prayer that God hears and God answers. Saul of Tarsus has a a new understanding of his state, a new knowledge of his sin. In Romans chapter 7, listen to how Paul reasons as a converted new man in Christ Jesus. Verse 7 of Romans 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the Lord said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. Uh, sin didn't bother him. But when the law was properly understood, then it did bother him. And how did he discover what sin really was in his part. Whenever he discovered the law was spiritual and he was carnal. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. The righteous, self-righteous, pharisaical, Saul of Tarsus died. He died. The law slew him. Because you know what he discovered? When he said, according to the law, the keeping of the law, the righteousness which is of the law, he was blameless. And so when he stood up, And he started to talk that way. Whenever God by his spirit really applied the law with force to him, you know what he discovered? I'm standing here boasting of my righteousness. It is by my endeavors to actually keep the law that I'm sinning. And when I am congratulating myself at how I'm keeping the law, I'm actually condemning myself. And this is what Paul is saying. When sin revived, when it became alive, and I really understood what it was, the Pharisee died. His self-righteousness died. His law-keeping meant nothing. He died. And this is what you see we have to understand when God says, Behold, he prayeth. He's praying very differently. He's now praying 
as one who's really aware of just how exceedingly sinful he really is. He can see nothing good in himself. Nothing. It's all gone. It's all evaporated. He can find nothing good in himself. And there he is praying. Praying as a man who's destitute. Behold, he prayeth. He brings the right prayer. The prayer of a poor, destitute sinner. That's the prayer that he brings to God. But it is, of course, the prayer then that God answers. And when Paul writes uh, to Timothy, as we've looked at it already, this is what he says in... uh, Verse 15 of 1 Timothy 1, we've already read it. This is a faithful saying. And worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus come into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. How be it? For this cause I obtained mercy. He never thought he needed mercy before. He thought that he was doing well. He didn't need mercy. That's the last thing he needed. He was looking for God's approval, for God to congratulate him. Now he discovers the greatest need of Saul of Tarsus, the Pharisee, the Hebrew of the Hebrews. The greatest thing that he needs is mercy. And this is what he says. I obtained mercy. Because he came to the right place for it. And he asked for it by faith. And he obtained it. Because it is he who tells us that we are to come boldly to the throne of grace. To what? That we might obtain mercy. And find grace to help in time of need. What an amazing thing it is. Behold, he prayeth. Saul of Tarsus has reached the very throne of God. He's reached the very throne of grace. And he's obtained mercy. Behold, he prayeth. And what's he praying for? Mercy. That was the great discovery he made. If there's anyone needs mercy, it's Saul of Tarsus. But he prays by faith in the first epistle of Timothy again, in the second chapter of that epistle. They have, you have there in verse three, the apostle (coughs) saying or writing, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will of all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. And it is through that one that the apostle prays. Behold, he prayeth. Behold, 
he prayeth. Wouldn't it be something if that could be said of each of us this evening? There's a man in Grafton, and he's really praying. There's a young woman in Grafton. She really is praying. They're not just uttering words. They're really praying. And how will we know and how will God know that they're really praying when they ask for mercy? That's what Saul of Tarsus said he obtained. Mercy. Dear young people, pray for divine mercy. You might think there's a thousand and one things you want to pray for. Success at school. Success in life. But the one thing that you can be sure you will receive if you pray for it, and that is the mercy of God in and through Christ Jesus. And may indeed it be said, Behold, he prayeth. Behold, she prayeth. I was reading of an incident years ago in the British Army. And one night in one of the British bases, there was a sentinel. He saw a young soldier creeping stealthily into the camp. And he asked, who goes there? And the young soldier had to make himself known. And he told the sentinel, I was out there praying under the trees alone with God. And of course, that wasn't very acceptable with as an excuse for the sentinel. So he took him and he brought him before his commanding officer. And he tried to explain, sir... It's my habit to pray, to spend time alone with God. And it's the only place I can find peace and quiet, out there below the trees. And that's what I was doing. And his commanding officer looked at him. And he said, so you practice prayer then, do you? Yes, sir, I do. Well, he said, get down on your knees and pray now. That soldier got down on his knees and he prayed. And when he had finished, his commanding officer said, you're dismissed. When I asked you to pray, it's obvious you're a praying man and you're dismissed. If we are in the habit of praying, it will become obvious. Prayer is not something that's a game. Praying is not something that's a recreation. Praying is a lifestyle. That's what George Mueller said. And we all, if we know anything of him, we know how many prayers of his God answered. But he said he prayed as he walked. He prayed as he sat. He prayed as he went to bed in the evening. He prayed when he got up. He never stopped praying. Praying for him was a lifestyle. Behold, he prayeth. Is that our lifestyle? Is that how we live? In constant communion with God. Reconciled to him. 
Behold, he prayeth. May the Lord bless his word. Let us pray. Most holy and eternal God, we thank thee for the mighty change that God is able to work in the heart and in the soul of even the chiefest and the worst of sinners. And we pray that we might, even in our dark day, see something of that miraculous work. Remember those here this evening who are still graceless and Christless. May they discover the value and the preciousness of the Savior. May they indeed discover themselves, and in discovering themselves, discover their need of Christ. Bless thy truth then. Hear us, pardon us, accept us. For Christ's sake, amen.